This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 27th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Stanislas Dahan talks with us about consciousness. What is it and can machines have it? And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. And in this month's book segment, Jen Golbeck talks about Scott Kelly's memoir, Endurance. Scott Kelly spent a record year in space aboard the International Space Station. In Endurance, Kelly describes his voyage and his life leading up to the epic journey. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Hi, Dave. Hi, Sarah. Our first story is on the sun pushing asteroids around. This is about Mars Trojans. This is two groups of asteroids that precede and follow Mars as it orbits the sun. They travel basically at the same speed as Mars, about 60 degrees ahead and 60 degrees behind, kind of like planes flying in a steady formation around the sun. So, And they actually hang around in the Lagrange points, which are these stable positions for small objects when two large objects are involved in their orbit. So um, the mystery surrounding Mars Trojans is that of the 10 asteroids, almost all of them trail behind the planet and only one or two go before it. So Dave, what's going on? Why is this a mystery? Well, you know, and the ones that are trailing behind the planet are all in a very similar sort of orbit, and they're very close together as well. Um, it all seems to sort of suggest that maybe they were once part of a larger asteroid that got broken up. But our common conceptions of how that happened is maybe something smacking into the asteroid really hard. And in that case, you would produce fragments that were sort of all over the place and maybe in very different orbits and very far apart from each other. But these guys are really close together, which suggests maybe there was a collision, but maybe it was a very gentle collision, perhaps. <laughs> or, or it was a yorp. 
A Yorp. Yeah. So, okay, so let's let's dissect Yorp. Yorp means Yarkovsky O'Keefe Radzkowski Paddock effect, and I think I probably mispronounced at least one of those uh, names. But basically, this is what happens uh, when an asteroid spins up to ever faster rotation speed because of an imbalance in radiation pressure. So what does that mean? That means that, um, for example, if sunlight strikes the asteroid uh, on its surface, um, maybe it warms part of the surface more than the other. That can cause different kinds of spinning. And the bits that make up the asteroid over time, they can't stay together and they start flying off. Now, flying off, maybe not flying off very far apart from each other, but definitely here we're talking about a much more gentle collision or event than you would have if something slammed into a large asteroid. And that's how you get your blitz. That's how you get your blitz. I love this. It's my favorite <laughs> word of the day. So this, the scientist, uh, one of the leaders of this team, calls them your blitz. And these are these little asteroids that come off of a larger asteroid because of the your effect. And what about the other asteroids, the one that are in the preceding group? Why aren't they yorped out? Well, it's possible that maybe um, they were spinning fast enough that they could throw off this yorp effect, or maybe that they were tumbling so chaotically that the sun could sort of act on it the same way it acted on the precursor asteroid that gave birth to these other Trojans. Uh, that part is a little bit unclear. But, you know, and so why do we care, Sarah? Why do we care? And we care because... Wait, I asked the question. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> you asked the question. Sarah, why do we care? Why do we care, Dave? Why do we care? And the reason we care uh, ostensibly, if you're, especially if you're in science fiction, is that, you know, this, there's this idea that we can, for deep space exploration, we're going to need to mine asteroids. We're going to need to get water, potentially other materials out of them to keep on hopping maybe from planet to planet in space. And so the more we know about these guys, how they form, how they function, where they came from, potentially the better we'll be able to harness them in the future. Now we have a story on the world's first trees. How far back do you have to go to find the world's first trees, Dave? Well, at least if we're talking about the world's first trees that formed the world's first forest, we have to go back about 400 million years. And the trees we're talking about are cladoxylopsids. And uh, hopefully I only have to say that once. Now, these are really weird-looking trees. We actually have an artist's reconception of them on the site, and they sort of almost look like warped palm trees. They kind of look like they came out of a Dr. Seuss book. Um, and there's kind of been a mystery of how these guys actually grew, and it turns out they grew via a pretty surprising and very unique mechanism. What's exciting about this find is that the fossils of these trees is so detailed that we can look at how they developed and grew. What made the fossils so special? Well, you know, these things usually aren't very well preserved, but there was a couple fossils recovered from China in 2012. And what had happened or what researchers think that happened is that they underwent a process in which silica, which was likely emitted by a nearby volcano, saturated the tree and sort of took on the tree's shape and the tree's most importantly, its internal structure as it decayed. And this preserved its 3D structure over time. And so now we've got some fossils. You can actually also see a picture of these with the story that actually give sort of a detailed inner look at the guts 
of these trees. Almost like a cross section. So exactly. What can we learn? What What is different about the way these trees grew and the way trees grow today? Well, today's trees grow via a pretty simple mechanism. They have this single cylindrical shaft made up of hundreds of woody strands called xylem, and these strands conduct water. Um, and what happens when the tree grows is basically the new xylem grow in rings, which is why we have tree rings, at the periphery of the trunk, just behind the bark. And as they, they these rings grow and expand, the tree gets bigger and it can get taller. But that's not what's happening with these clad oxylopsids. And I swore I was never going to say it again, <laughs> but I did. Um, and basically what happens with these trees is they actually have multiple xylem columns that are spaced around the perimeter of a hollow trunk. And there's this network of crisscrossing strands connected to the vertical xylem, kind of like a chain link fence spreads from pole to pole. And this, there's soft tissue that fills the spaces between all these strands. But what's really interesting is that these trees grew by essentially busting their guts. What mm-hmm. happened is the new growth forms in rings around each of the xylem columns while an increasing volume of soft tissue forces the strands to spread out. And this basically sort of splits apart the tree's xylem skeleton, which requires the tree to continually repair itself as it grows. Okay, that does sound a lot different and even more complicated than what's going on now. These trees formed the first forest, as you mentioned, and they probably played a key role in taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and adding oxygen, so setting us up for life as we know it today. Right. Uh, Are there any of their relatives in today's forests? No, they were an evolutionary dead end, so there's no descendants of these trees, and we're not really sure why. We're not sure if it's because perhaps they were left in the shade of taller, more robust trees. These trees only got into about 12 meters tall, or maybe the changing climate that they may themselves helped create uh, was not favorable for them, and so they died off. Last up, we have a story on poverty versus climate change. The question here is, will lifting people out of poverty make it harder to get climate change under control? Why might these goals be in conflict, Dave? Well, Sarah, as people get more money, especially if they're very poor to begin with, and this study really deals with the world's poorest people, people that live on less than $2 a day, people that are not even able to access basic things like food and water, If as you give them more money, theoretically, they're spending on goods and services which themselves maybe require transportation or generating greenhouse gases, but also they may be traveling more themselves, perhaps by car, and that in itself is causing more CO2, other greenhouse gases, to get into the environment. Now, the reason this story specifically pits these things together is because the UN has goals that kind of outline what they want to do in the world in terms of poverty and in terms of climate change. How do those things work or not work together? Right. So the UN wants to eradicate extreme poverty by 2030, but at the same time, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change wants to keep global warming below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels uh, by the end of the century. And so you can imagine you're lifting people out of poverty, which is going to potentially increase greenhouse gas emissions, but you're also trying to keep those emissions under control. So these two things seem like they might be in conflict. What's the research here, Dave? Basically, what they did was they modeled a couple of scenarios, one that brought the world's poorest out of extreme poverty, but just lifted them up into sort of being 
a little less poor. So going from less than $1.90 a day to getting up to maybe $1.90 a day. Um, and in the other scenario, they take these very poor people from earning basically almost no money to earning what's considered basically part of the global middle class, which is an average income of about $3 a day. And what they found in the first scenario, there's not a really big impact on climate change. Taking very, very poor people and get, raising them up to about a couple of dollars a day is projected to only contribute about 0.05 degrees Celsius in additional warming by the end of the century. And that's pretty manageable. But if you take the world's poorest and you bring them up to about $3 a day, now you're adding about 0.6 degrees Celsius to an already projected two degrees of warming by the end of the century. And now you start to have problems because to fight that amount of rise, extra rise in global warming, we've got to increase by 27% our efforts to reduce carbon emissions. Is anybody even doing an okay job at this point? No, in we're not even emissions? getting we're not even getting close to that point right now. The best we've got so far is Sweden, which is by replacing fossil fuels with nuclear energy and hydropower they've been able to get about a 4% increase in their effort to reduce carbon emissions, which is really far from this 20% increase of effort that we're, really, we're going to need, at least according to this study. Can we science our way out of this? Are there small behaviors, large behaviors, money to be spent? I mean, is there a way to get both things done? Well, you know, in terms of technology, we're really going to have to think much bigger picture or maybe much more outside the box to deal with such an increase, potential increase uh, in global warming. But on the small scale, there are things we can do, a vegetarian diet, using public transportation, traveling shorter distances. And if you listen to our podcast a few weeks ago, maybe having fewer kids uh, could also play a role. Uh, so there are little things that we could do. Well, I guess having fewer kids is kind of a big thing we could do. Uh, but yeah, there are things that every individual could potentially do to help sort of drive down some of these increases. Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about gray whales that are stranding themselves for the love of tasty shrimp. Also a story about why humans may have evolved to cooperate not just with our friends, but with our enemies. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why some groups are calling for a dramatic retooling of the rules regulating animal research in the U.S. Also a story about why the Swiss shut down an astronomy institute in the wake of harassment claims. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. A review this week on machine consciousness seems somewhat timely in light of the recent reboot of the movie Blade Runner. I didn't see it. And I don't know that I will, but I really enjoyed the first edition. It's to a large extent about self-awareness in androids. That's robots, not phones. Do they know they are machines? And can we tell the difference from the outside? Of course, we're nowhere near that being a problem right now. These days, researchers are looking carefully at what it means to be conscious and what it might take for a machine to get there. Stanislas Dahan is here to talk to us about a review he authored on this topic. Welcome, Stanislas. Hello. The hard part, to my mind, comes before you get to designing artificial intelligence or machine learning architectures. First, you have to decide what you mean by consciousness. You review this in a, a series of different dimensions. You have C0, C1, and C2. Can you give us an example of how each of these dimensions of consciousness operate in a person? 
Right. So what we call C0 is actually unconscious processing. Mm -hmm. A lot of information processing can occur in a machine without any form of consciousness. We are relying on experiments in human subjects that have shown that, for instance, face recognition can occur without any form of consciousness. We can flash your face on screen, mask it such that you don't see it, and yet show that the relevant circuits of the brain have been activated. Uh, the same occurs with words processing. A lot of our understanding of written words or spoken words occurs completely unconsciously and we're only conscious of the top level gist of the message. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you're not aware of, if you will. Is that when you get to C1, is that more about awareness of what's going on? Essentially, what we mean by the word consciousness, uh, you're absolutely right, this is a word with multiple meanings. So the first meaning we want to uh, separate is the notion of global availability. If I am conscious of a word, what that means is that my whole brain is aware of it in a sense that we can use the information in a global manner. In particular, one criteria for consciousness is uh, I can speak about the information. Mm -hmm. When I'm conscious of it, it's available for report. But it's also available for internal processing. If I'm conscious of information, I can use it for my decisions. I can store it in memory and retrieve it later. So we think that in a machine, this might translate into a system that takes information out of whichever processing module it is encapsulated in and uh, make it available to any of the other processing modules so they can use the information. So it's a first sense of consciousness. And what about this other sense that you use, the C2 sense? So the second sense of consciousness that we like to distinguish is uh, C2, is called self-monitoring. Mm -hmm. We often think that there is a link between consciousness and the sense of self. We are able to introspect, gain access to our own mental processes, and for instance, know whether we are right or wrong. This is quite typical in the case of the tip of the tongue phenomena. We know that we should know this word. We are not able to access the word, but we know that we know it. You also mentioned it in terms of curiosity, which I thought was a really pertinent example, the idea that you know what you don't know and you kind of orient towards those domains if you're curious. Yes, so that's why um, this self-monitoring is so important, including in young children. Young children absolutely need to monitor what they don't know in order to ask others or to inquire, to become curious and learn more. One of the authors of the paper, Sid Quidders, did a beautiful experiment showing that infants, quite early on, have this uh, self-monitoring ability. They are able to know when they don't know, and then that's exactly when they will ask a parent. And there's also this element of confidence in your knowledge that that's part of this uh, C2 consciousness. Yes, so confidence is the flip side. If you know that you know something, you're going to be more confident. So one, one thing you go back to several times in your review is this idea of how having these types of consciousness would affect a car. So can you walk us through what would be different about a car if it had C1 and C2 consciousness? So in the paper, we take the example of the gaslight in a car. The, the gaslight comes up and the driver is aware of it, but not the car. So what would it take for the car to become conscious of the gaslight? Well, the, the first thing is that the information about the gaslight would have to be sent to all of the other processors in the car that can use this information. For instance, to the GPS map that uh, may well have uh, the location of the gas stations, but doesn't know that the light is relevant to that. 
So it's a matter of globalizing the information. And then in order to do that properly, the car would need to have some kind of catalog of its cognitive abilities. For instance, knowing that it's useful to uh, have a map of gas stations and that one is available. A car that would have this sort of self-knowledge would have what we call C2, self-monitoring. And the two properties together would mean that the car would care about the gaslight when it shows up, just like we humans care about it. It would care because it would know it's relevant, it would try to lower its consumption, maybe stop at the next gas station, so on and so forth. Because the signal is globally available and because it's being monitored in a way that, uh, you know, the machine is looking at itself. So you and your co-authors, you come at this from the angle of cognitive science, thinking about consciousness, thinking how we can measure it in people. But what kinds of approaches, just briefly, are being used in artificial intelligence to try to achieve some of these levels or these types of consciousness? Well, the first thing we argue in the paper is that much of uh, current AI, which is based on the convolutional neural networks, is really addressing C0, which is unconscious processing. It can be very intelligent, but solely feed-forward information processing is typical of unconscious processing. So we think that the machines are missing uh, these two ingredients for the most part, but there are, of course, a lot of efforts trying to add a sense of self-knowledge in the sense of a sense of probability of being right or wrong in your networks. One approach, for instance, you can train a second network to look at a first network and try to predict whether the first one will get the response correct or not sort of hierarchical organization, which is not unlike what happens in the brain, where the frontal cortex has been described as uh, looking at posterior areas and trying to model them. So a sort of model of the brain inside itself. Right. Well, if an AI or a machine learning system had C1 and C2 going on, so they had somehow lashed together enough networks to have it express confidence in the calls that it was making and also be able to self-diagnose and, and see what was going on with itself in terms of its knowledge or its operations, would it be conscious or appear so to us? I think it would be conscious. Mm. Thanks to C1, it would be able to use the information it has and to use it flexibly, to route it to different circuits. And thanks to self-monitoring, it would know the limits of what it knows and be able to search for more information. And the point that we try to make in the paper is that we believe that's all there is to consciousness. Consciousness is a functional property. We keep adding functions to machine. And at some point, it's not going to be a magic threshold, but at some point, these properties characterize what we mean by the term consciousness. It's a functional property also in humans. Do you think that some are going to argue that there's more to consciousness, that there's this experiential sense of living life that's missing from your definitions? Well, this is a constant argument with philosophers who think that there is this experience component of qualia, the special thing of what it is like to be in front of a sunset, for instance. But uh, we're trying to take a sort of radical stance. Maybe it's simplifying the problem. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you add all of these functional properties, this means that the machine is also contemplating the sunset, is being able to access all of the information which is relevant. It's able to see itself processing this information since to the C2 self-monitoring. I don't think we would be very far from uh, what it is like to be a human. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Stanislaus Dahan and colleagues write about approaches to machine consciousness this week in science. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to this month's book segment of the Science Magazine podcast. 
U.S. astronaut Scott Kelly spent a record year in space aboard the International Space Station, or ISS, from March of 2015 through 2016. This month, his memoir Endurance is released, in which Kelly describes his voyage and his life leading up to the epic journey. Here's Captain Kelly from Kazakhstan as he prepared to leave Earth for that mission, describing why such a long journey is important. Well, someday we're going to go to Mars, um, and we have the uh, facilities on board the space station to really study uh, the uh, effects of space on longer duration space flights. I mean, six months is a long time, but, you know, going to Mars is going to take a lot longer than that. How Kelly got to that point is at the heart of his book. He shares stories of growing up in West Orange, New Jersey with his twin brother, Mark, who's also an astronaut. And here the reader learns about the crazy risks the brothers like to take, like that ill-fated street crossing that got his brother Mark a trip to the hospital. In another passage, Kelly describes his first tailhook landing on an aircraft carrier where he had neglected to properly lock his harness and was thrown full force into his jet's instrument panel. The experience taught him that the importance of following seemingly arbitrary instructions would be useful for the rest of his career, including astronaut training. Interwoven with this backstory is a detailed account of life as an astronaut. While we all probably know it's not just space missions and downtime, Kelly's book paints a picture of the training, the environments, the accidents, and the risk. When a carbon dioxide filter fails or the engines that keep them in orbit fail to fire, Kelly conveys a clear sense of just how vulnerable the astronauts are to tiny malfunctions in the complex ISS system. His descriptions of life aboard the International Space Station highlight the combination of routine, mundanity, and at times terror that comes with living in the cold, dark vacuum of space. As an example, Kelly spends five pages describing the crew's patience and despair as a Russian resupply rocket is lost, contemplating how a human might die a horrible death if that same rocket were to have failed when it was carrying up a crew. But, ever the pragmatist, Kelly's reflections on mortality and human vulnerability are peppered with the mundane details of a more pressing concern he faced at the time, the need to repair the space toilet. Here's an excerpt in which Kelly and the ISS crew have just learned that progress, their resupply capsule, has been lost. Even more than our concern about supplies, though, is concern for our colleagues who will be launching soon. The rocket that doomed progress is the same rocket that launches the manned Soyuz. Our three new crewmates, due up in a little less than a month on May 26th, are about to trust their lives to the same hardware and software. The Russian space agency must investigate what went wrong and make sure there won't be a recurrence. That will interfere with our schedule up here, but no one wants to fly on a Soyuz that's going to do the same thing this progress did. It would make for a horrible death. Spinning out of control in low Earth orbit knowing you will soon be dead from CO2 asphyxiation or oxygen deprivation, after which our corpses would orbit the Earth until they burn up in the atmosphere months later. I finished making all the connections on the urine processor. Some of the cargo that was lost on progress was freshwater, and unless we can make our own, the six of us won't last long. I double-check all the connections, then ask the ground to power it up. It works. The ground congratulates me, and I thank them for their help. Kelly does not skimp on the details in his book. Whether describing the equipment he's using in space or the physical effects he suffered when returning to Earth, Kelly's book gives the reader a thorough glimpse into every aspect of astronaut life. While that could be a bit trying in a different memoir, it works here because it helps you feel the way Kelly thinks. 
Doing his job requires not just attention to detail in the task he's doing, but to every detail of everything that's going on in and around him. As I was reading, I could feel my mindset shift. I began thinking of each step in the process of my normal tasks and creating bulleted lists in my mind that describe how I was feeling at any given moment. Kelly closes the book with an epilogue revealing what he learned during his year in space. He begins modestly writing, The mission that I prepared for was, for the most part, the mission I flew. But, as he continues, he becomes more reflective. I've learned that most problems aren't rocket science, he writes. But when they are rocket science, you should ask a rocket scientist. I've learned that an achievement that seems to have been accomplished by only one person probably has hundreds, maybe even thousands of people's minds at work behind it. And I've learned that it's a privilege to be the embodiment of that work. I've learned that grass smells great and that wind feels amazing and that rain is a miracle. I'll try to remember how magical those things are for the rest of my life. Endurance by Scott Kelly is out this month. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can leave us a comment on the Science Books blog, Books at All, and we'll be back next month with another selection. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.